We are in a series called Dealing With Your Stuff. We've already looked at dealing with um, sin, guilt, and shame. And then we looked at false images or incomplete images of God. Last week it was um, fear, uh, also broken image of you. And today it is dealing with grief. Grief, that is the pain of death. I lived next to a cemetery for three years. All of you have passed the cemetery multiple times, assuming you go down 209 from here to town. The Presbyterian Church along 209, I worked there for three years, and I wasn't the pastor, but I was on staff, and the senior pastor had his own house, and my family lived in that house next to the church. And between the house and the church is a very old cemetery. And as I lived there for those three years, I had people ask me, does it ever bother you living next to a cemetery? That's kind of creepy. And I said, no, not at all. It, it never entered my mind. I wasn't bothered by it. However, there were some stories that came out of living next to a cemetery. One night in the summer, as I had the, my bedroom in that house faced north up toward the church and toward the cemetery, and it was a, it was a nice night, had the window open, and um, I was awakened by, by singing. And I heard someone who was walking down along 209 or in the cemetery at the edge of, of 209. But they were, it, was, it was a woman and she was singing. She had a beautiful voice. And, and I wasn't dreaming this, okay? <laughs> and because I saw her and she was singing the love ballad from Titanic. It wasn't Celine Dion, but she sounded pretty good, okay? <laughs> and I woke up Linda. And by the time Linda woke up and kind of got her wits about her, there was no more woman singing out there anymore. <laughs> and then I made the mistake of telling some, a guy at church that I saw that, and then I, I never heard the end of it. Um, okay, Paul, you're hearing the people sing out in the cemetery. All right, you're okay. But I, that was, uh, I, I insisted this day I didn't wake up in the middle of a dream. I heard that. But, so that was a little strange. There was another time we were having a church event there, and um, there's a large parking lot behind that church, and it was, it was, again, a summer night. And people were starting to put things away, wind down, get in their cars to go home. There's kids running around, and one of the things I always had to do in, in that situation was make sure the kids didn't go pouring into the cemetery. For some reason, the cemetery and kids like to run around out there, and that's not appropriate, not safe, so kids stay out of the cemetery. Well, there's people in the cemetery then, but they weren't kids, and they weren't part of the group that was there that night. So we're, I'm kind of looking at them and, and saying, I wonder what they're doing. So I walked over and, and said, hello. I said, can I help you? And there was, um, I don't know, three, four of the most people. And they said, oh, we are paranormal investigators. I said, okay. And they said, this is a hot spot for ghosts. Really? <laughs> they said, yeah. And they were very sincere, and so I, I tried not, you know, not to be condescending toward them or anything. I, okay. And they said, yes, you, you'll, you'll see signs here and there. You just watch carefully. So there'll be like, like a, light, a flash of light. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll watch. And so, yeah, right there, you see it? No, I didn't see that. I said, look, look, careful. Another minute went by. There! Oh, I saw that. When I grew up, we called them lightning bugs. 
I just kind of walked away at that point. They stayed a little while and went on their <laughs> merry way. So if they want to believe that a lightning bug is a ghost, hey, that's all right. Who am I to say otherwise except I don't believe them. But And then the, the third story wasn't so funny. There was a, a, a man that lost his wife very tragically, and uh, he didn't have any children and didn't really have a, f- a family. Now, as, as with a lot of churches, there, there's people that get buried there who don't necessarily have a direct connection to that church, at least not at the time. It's a, such was the case with this man. And so... There was a small service there at the gravesite, and our, I don't even think our pastor or myself were in any way involved. But the next night, I, his, I recognized his car, and he's sitting next to the grave, which is understandable. It's his, his wife, he misses her, and he would come back, not every day, but several days a week. Keep coming back, keep coming back. And, and, I, and I sort of got drawn to him, and I went over, and he's just weeping, and he says, is it okay that I'm here? I said, yes, absolutely, it's, it's okay. He said, she was my whole world. She's all that I have. And, and he wept. And I felt so sad. And he was even there one time in the middle of the night because he literally didn't know what to do with himself because she was his world. And, and she's gone. And after a while, that, that kind of went away and I never, never saw him again. Death is hard to deal with. It should be. It needs to be. And yet, sometimes we act as if it's never going to happen to us. That is, not just me personally, but, you know, the people who I love, I'm close to, um, you know, it won't happen to them. And none of us have that guarantee. None of us have a guarantee about yourself or your spouse, or your kids, or your grandkids, or your aunts, your uncles, your friends, your co-workers, everybody who matters to you in your life, none of them have a guarantee that they're going to live to a, a, a ripe old age, whatever that is, and when they go, okay, it'll still be sad, but at least they lived a good life. And it's nice when that happens, and, and we feel better about it, but there's still pain. There's still grief to walk through. You might be familiar with this. This is a chart about grieving, cycles of of grief, written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross way back in 1969. Um, And and the acrostic here is DABDA. Now, I didn't realize until I already put the, the, the slide up. This has it in a different order than I normally saw it. It's usually... Um, Denial, anger, bargaining, then depression and acceptance. But they, for whatever reason, they put depression in the middle. So, but in, in a sense, that's not important because what, what this reflects is normal things, normal feelings, normal emotions that you have when someone dies. Every human has them. Now, you may or may not deal with them. You may or may not be grieving in a healthy manner, and you can get stuck at one of these indefinitely. Certainly depression, there are people that have been been boxed into depression because of death. Indefinitely, there are people who were boxed into anger because of death. And and, uh, even denial, 
where, where they obviously can't bring the person back, but they just, they just live as if it never happened. So what I, what I say this to you is, is not to you know, start some um, class on psychology and, and, and death. I mean, that, that those things are helpful, but I say this to say that this is okay that you feel these things, and we're even going to see it in Scripture. And the, the other thing that I know is that quite often was helpful to me when I first learned this, that when, when your friend, your loved one who's passed away, you feel what you feel and the way you feel at the time that it happened in those days and those immediate weeks. Sometime around three months, give or take, could be weeks, it hits you again and usually unexpectedly and it can feel just as bad as when it happened. And when that hits people, they feel like, what's wrong with me? I, I went through this already. Why am I feeling it again? And it isn't necessarily associated with a holiday or a birthday or, or you know, something that you were, you were kind of ready for. Here comes their birthday. Here comes Christmas. Okay, it's going to be sad without them. It could be something out of nowhere. It could be a smell, which is a big memory thing that reminds you of that person. A sound, a song. That's normal. To go through these cycles in different ways and every one of us manages them different or experiences them differently. And as I said to the kids, Jesus wept. You know what that tells me? Jesus understands this stuff too. Well, he made us. So <laughs> to me, this is one of those areas where a scientist is simply identifying what God has done. Okay? Don't be afraid of science. They get it right sometimes. They get it wrong some other times. But don't we all? Okay? Lazarus. John chapter 11. We're going to pick it up at the... 17th verse. And what we're going to see in this story is that Jesus is three things in this story. He is a friend. He is a teacher or a rabbi. He is the son of God. And all of those are important. Now, if you know the story at all, uh, spoiler alert, I'll jump to the end. He brings Lazarus back to life after he's been in the grave for four days. Now, as John is writing this, as John is inspired by the Spirit of God to write down what we have before us now, what we're reading this morning, if the only reason for this story was to show the power of Christ over death, and that is an important point to story, I guess you could say the most important point, but it's not the only one. Because if that was the only point to the story, it would have went something like this. And Jesus waited four days after hearing of Lazarus' sickness. After he died, he went there. He walked right up to the grave and said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus came out and the people praised God. And that would have been the end of the story. He could have done that. It still would have demonstrated the same thing. Wow, Jesus, the Son of God, has power over death. That's awesome. And yet... There are nuances given to us in the story before he points at the grave and says, Lazarus, come out. Why? Because God knows that we all have to deal with the experience of grief. God knows that we all are going to have people close to us that die or experiences of loss in our lives that hit us in very deep places. 
So let's begin here at the 17th verse. We're going to go 17 through 20. So Jesus had waited after hearing of the news that Lazarus was sick. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus and of Mary and Martha, his sisters. That is Lazarus' sisters. And so he waited for a while, knew that he died, then he went. 17th verse. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Well, first of all, you remember Mary and Martha from another story? One of them was fussing in the kitchen while there was a meal to be put out. The other was sitting there at Jesus' feet, ignoring all the work in the kitchen. So it was Mary at Jesus' feet. I think I got that right. And Martha in the kitchen. And Mary, Martha was upset. Jesus, tell, tell Mary to get to work. We, 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 got, we got food to put out here. We got cooking to do. We got pots to clean, you know, whatever. But, and Jesus said, ah, you're worried about too many things, Martha. She's doing what's right. And, and, and there's so many great lessons in that story that we know. But these are the sisters. So just consider that, that little peek into their, their personality traits. You, you have Martha, very task-oriented. Okay? She, she's got to get the food out. That's what matters. Maybe food is her love language, all right? Then you have Mary, who just... Where's Jesus? Just let me sit at his feet. I just want to listen to him. This is awesome. And, and, and she, she probably, she's more people-oriented, okay? And, and you can look at him in other ways than that, too. Well, when their brother passed away, the community did what any good community is going to do. They come to their side. It says that there was these uh, people from Jerusalem just a couple of miles away that came who knew Mary and Martha, heard about Lazarus, uh, it doesn't say if he was an older brother or a younger or was in the middle of the two of them. You almost get the sense that their parents were probably dead. Very, very possible. My hunch is that Lazarus was younger than both of them. He was their little brother. You know, but, and, and other scholars kind of said that, but there's no clear evidence of that. But, um, so their, their brother's gone. Any family, that, that's tragic. And so they come to be at their side. Grief should be a community event. And that's exactly what it is. And there, that's exactly what it needs to be in our lives today. One of the tragedies of the pandemic was people, and some of you have experienced that, have experienced that in these last two years. When, when you lose a loved one, you can't grieve normally in the sense of gathering people around you, you know, in a church, in a funeral home, wherever, and, and, and supporting each other and, and sharing in a meal, which is a very healing experience for everyone. We're able to do that. We need community. We are wired for community. And what we're not wired to do is to take on grief alone. Like, this is my thing, don't bother me about it. Oh, I, I'll get over this, just, just let me go. And when, when people make that choice, that is something that is going to, if they don't turn from that course at some point, 
it's, it, it's going to do damage to themselves, going to do damage to their relationships with other people who have that same connection with that person who's gone. We need to grieve. We need people around us. We need the church. And, and those of you sitting here, many of you, we've gone together through this death experience together. Together. And the reason that's important is because the weight of death is so heavy that we are not meant to carry alone. It is indeed too much to carry alone. So, so when, when we support one another, it's like taking a little piece of that and handing it to them. Here, you can have some of my pain. I'll give some back to you. And, and you share in the pain. You carry the pain together. You carry it because it's too much to carry by yourself. That's why we need community. That's what was going on here in this story. Verse 21 then says this, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha is expressing one of those emotions we talked about a moment ago, anger. Now consider this. They've known Jesus for a while. And they weren't just some of his followers, some of the masses in the crowd. They were friends. They, they were first name basis. Okay? So when they sent word to Jesus, and this is very late in his ministry, this story takes place a couple of weeks before Jesus goes to the cross and dies and rises again. So by this point, Mary and Martha, they knew the stories. They were probably eyewitnesses to some of the stories of the amazing healings this man did, of how he would, he would heal. He would drop everything to go and help a total stranger. In fact, he dropped everything to help a Roman centurion one time. And then as it turned out, the centurion said, no, 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 I don't deserve that kind of attention. But, but if you say the word, my, my servant who's like a son to me, you will be healed, which is why he came to Jesus. And Jesus healed him from a distance. So Mary and Martha would understandably be thinking he could do that. Even if he didn't come, he could, he could pray and he's going to be okay. And none of that happened. So Martha comes out. And the first thing she expresses is what is apparent that her and her sister and perhaps others were thinking, why didn't he come? Where were you, Jesus? You didn't fix this. You didn't change this. But unlike her sister, what we'll come to in a moment, which is why I said temper emotion with faith. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to say that. It's okay to express the anger, the frustration, the bewilderment about why God didn't change something when you asked passionately so many times. But she also says about faith. I know that even now, I'll give you what you ask. That's what helps us. I mentioned those various phases of, of, of grief not getting stuck in any one of them too long. Um, and what, what helps us to stay, to, to, to not stay in anger, is to bring faith along. 
And, and even if you don't get it yet, all right, you don't understand, of course this doesn't make sense to me, but I still trust God. Even just saying that, I trust you, Lord. I don't feel like trusting you. I don't feel you're very trustworthy right now, but I'm still going to in faith say, Lord, I trust you. I still believe. That's kind of what Martha's doing right here. She is tempering her emotion, softening it, balancing it out with faith in the one who's right before her, her friend, her teacher, and something else too. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She took it even further. She took it beyond friend. She took it beyond teacher. She took it even beyond a healer. And said, you are the Son of God. Now, we, we look at that and think, well, of course, we know today Jesus is the Son of God. That's revealed in Scripture. But when you go through the Gospels, there are only two other occasions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John before the resurrection of Jesus where any person says to Jesus, you are the Son of God. For a lot of reasons. One of them being that to say such a thing is blasphemy. Not just for Jesus to say that about himself, which is what he was accused of, which ultimately, in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, took him to that cross, made him worthy of death, in their thinking, but for any other person to say, yeah, I believe he, that is Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed the Son of God, they can get in trouble from the Sanhedrin. So you don't say that easily. You don't say that, you know, just, just out of nowhere. But even early in his ministry, in John chapter 1, the end of the chapter, there's a man named Nathaniel who declares that Jesus is the Son of God. And then when you get to the disciples much later, remember that time they were, they were out on a boat without Jesus and the storm came up and Jesus is walking on the water and then Peter says, I'll come out to you if it's you, Lord. And he walks out and he sings, he gets back in the boat. Jesus calms the storm. Once the storm stopped, the disciples in the boat said, you are the Son of God. Those two occasions and this with Martha are the only other times anyone said that. Now consider this. He hasn't risen from the dead yet. He hasn't even risen her brother from the dead yet. And yet she is claiming from her heart, you are the son of God. It shows an incredible amount of faith on Martha's part. To take that, that, that understandable emotion and frustration with why Jesus didn't come, but still trust him as the Son of God, to believe in the resurrection. Jesus says one of what's called the great I am's, that is I am, okay? I am the resurrection. Can you think of some of the other I am's of Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the good shepherd, and, and there's, there's others as well. I am, which points back to the voice of God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus when Moses said, what is your name? Tell me what your name is. I am. So here's Jesus. 
I am. And this is really the greatest of the I am's because I am the resurrection is good news for everybody. Because through him, we have resurrection. So yes, Jesus is teaching in this story his power over the grave, his power to give resurrection to all who believe in him. But he's also dealing with the grief along the way. Are you angry at God? It's okay, he can handle it. Verse 28, start there. After she had said this, that is Martha, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And then she reached Jesus and she says this, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same question, same statement her sister made. But there's no, well, I still trust you, or I still believe that this can change. It's, it's the anger that's coming out of this woman. This woman who was sitting at his feet, just taking in every word at that banquet before, when her sister was angry at her for not coming out in the kitchen to help. This is that woman. Why, Lord? What is going on? And she's angry. Notice too, I said at the start of this, how Jesus is a friend in this story, how Jesus is teacher in this story, how Jesus is son of God in this story. When Martha comes back to convince Mary to come out of the house, and that's what it seems like, he didn't say, Jesus is looking for you. You know, our friend, he said, the teacher. So Mary responds to that, is approaching him as teacher. Teacher, rabbi, the one who's healed so many people. Why weren't you here before? She's not coming as a friend, and she's not even coming as the son of God, to, to the son of God. She's coming to him as teacher because the teacher messed up. The teacher didn't do what she was hoping. And, she, and she's, she's angry. And it's okay that she's angry. God's not going to strike you with lightning because you tell him how you feel. God is not going, going, to, going to punish you, turn his back on you because you're angry because of the pain you feel inside from death. And that's why this part of the story is here. Because look exactly to how Jesus responded to her grief. He wept. You know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't say to Mary, how dare you talk to me that way, Mary? Now, when you can calm down and you come back to me and give me the respect that is due to me and pray much more calmly, then I will listen. No, he didn't say that. 
He wasn't offended by her anger. He didn't scold her or correct her or quote scripture at her. You know what he saw? He saw her pain. You know what else he saw? The others who were with her were also crying and upset. And he wept. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. So notice there, while we pay attention to that one verse with those two words, <laughs> Jesus wept, that, that alone reveals something. But he, he had already started to feel it when he saw them. Isn't that the way it is? Like you, you hear the news and you, you get the phone call and then you, you're kind of to, to, to wrap your mind around this and, and you don't know how to feel at first. But then you see somebody else. You see your brother, your sister. You see your common friend. You see someone who loved that person the way you did. That's when the breakdown comes. And that's, a, that's the way Jesus is. All he could get out was, where have you laid him? I, I think Jesus wept also because he couldn't speak. And he knew he didn't have to speak. Sometimes people ask me, um, just as, as a pastor, Pastor, I'm, I, I don't like going to funerals and I don't like going to, to wakes or to visitation, wherever you might call them, because I don't know what to say. That's all right. You don't have to say anything. Be there. Say the obvious. I'm so sorry. I love you. This is sad. I mean, don't, don't quote scripture at him. Just don't. I mean, if it's if someone that you know believes anyway, I mean, they know the scriptures. And, and you reminding them that all things work together for good for those who love him isn't going to make them feel better. And sometimes it can almost be offensive because although you may not intend it this way, what they hear is, my pain doesn't matter because God's going to make it all bright tomorrow. Don't do that. I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see Jesus telling Mary and scolding her, quoting scripture at her. He cried with her. He wept with her. This is the Jesus that we know. This is the Jesus that we worship. That's why this is in the story. Not just that he has ultimate power over life and death and resurrection available to all people for all time. To those who follow him and believe in him, praise God. It's also this person was a person and is a person and understands our pain and weeps with us when our tears come. Verse 37 then says that, but some said, could, he not could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This picture is, is from one of the depictions of the life of Jesus, and this is at the cross, almost as, as if this was Jesus' view from the cross, and he's seeing these in the middle there, the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, who came to the cross to mock him. To came to the cross to watch him die. To came to the cross to hurl insults at him. And, and so, so even in a moment of death, there's going to be doubters. There's doubters in life. There's doubters in death. Don't 
Pay attention to them. Don't give them the time of day, the doubters. Even in this story, this beautiful story, when they saw this emotion of Jesus, you know, here he is crying. Why didn't he fix it? What's wrong with him? And then to wrap the story up, listen to what it says at 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, more emotion, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, Martha, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there, was a bad, there will be a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And also the benefit of us reading it today. Verse 43, when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. He told them to move the stone. He told them to move the stone. He was going to do the real work. He was going to do what nobody else in that crowd could do, was to tell that man who was dead for four days, life come back to you, you're going to come out. But they had to move the stone. We can put big old rocks and stones in the way of the resurrection power of Christ in our life. We can put a stone of doubt in the way. We can put a stone of selfish pride about grief. Oh, I, I get this. People cry, especially guys. Yeah, women cry. They're supposed to cry, not me. No, I, I got this. I don't need your help. That, 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 that's a stone you need to remove because you need to express your emotion too. And you know what else? The, the, one of the reasons that is so selfish is because someone else needs you to express that to them. But if you're just holding it in or refusing to admit it or anything like that, then, then you are limiting their healing process, not just yours. That's why this is, a, again, shared community, family experience to walk through grief in the healthiest possible way. So we need to take all these stones away that get in the way of God doing what only God can do in you. And the one thing God can do in you that no one else can give you is life eternal through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has done so, and your faith in Him provides that. And believe that. Stand on that. Draw life from it. And then when you face this moment yourself, or when someone else you love faces this moment of death, here again you have that promise that I am, that as Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who that believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Amen. Thank you, God, for that truth that we have in Jesus Christ, your son, who showed his power over death by bringing this man back to life after days in the grave. And help us to believe in that power eternally. Lazarus would die again one day, but he's with you in heaven. 
And because of Jesus going to the cross and defeating death for us, we are promised the same. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.